Hi, Jeremy. Oh, hi, Raphael. Hey. So um, we left our audience in the dust. Well, like, yeah, in my case, I'm literal dust. It's so dry here where I am now. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot a lot has happened in our personal lives. We were vacationing in Canada in the, the state yep. of Quebec in a beautiful Airbnb. And then you got the call. Oh, it, yeah. Well, you were telling us, like, oh, man, it's been really rough. I had to lay off so many people, and I had to tell people that the job was discontinued. And yeah, yeah. That was and very emotional for you, but you were, you were the boss. It's been a stressful boss. year, yeah, in that yeah. regard. Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, we were together, and you got to see firsthand the reaction on my face when I was, I was part of layoffs, too, which yeah. is... You know, the first time in my entire life, actually. The great I'm, resignation turned into the great goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not the only one. There are thousands and thousands of people, friends and family that I know. Well, not family. I don't have anyone in my family that's been let go in this round, but still, like, lots and lots of friends and colleagues. And it's, it's weird because I've also noticed a lot of relationships ending. Like, my friends didn't really break up after COVID or during COVID. There was a lot of separation then. Mm -hmm. But now I've seen all of a sudden, like in... In three weeks, four good friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, plus people are getting COVID again. And it's been an interesting year. Uh, I mean, first nothing changes, then everything changes all at once. I yeah. think like we've had two years of like, yes, the pandemic was a lot of change, but we didn't yeah. really, there weren't that many, like it was kind of stable when you think about it, right? Like there was a routine. Well, to, it, it, it was a COVID. I think for um, certain sectors, it was more disruptive than others. And we're screen workers, so our jobs actually got amplified. It's like, oh, we need whatever people are doing on screens. We need more of that. We need yeah, more Amazon. Yeah. We need more Netflix. We need all that stuff. Yeah. And we're in the screen space. Everybody's like, oh, net art, NFT, all that stuff. Right. But now all it was kind of an overinvestment in, in screens, and uh, that's changing now. I guess people are traveling people are putting their energy elsewhere and yeah. yeah i mean it's yeah i had already planned some big changes so i also since we it has been a while since we've done this podcast probably like more than a, has it been more than a month yeah i think so because it, i don't know if our listeners follow us week to week but jeremy has been living in toronto uh for as long as were you born there yeah, I was born there. And yeah, so you're a true Torontoite. I have lived in other places. I, I lived in Syracuse, New York for three years and Berlin for six months. I don't know if that really counts, but yeah, um, yeah but now then, I live in Calgary. Uh, Kristen <laughs> got the call and they're like, we need you in Calgary. And you guys decided to really jump in and buy a home as well. Yeah, we yeah. So <laughs> it's funny because like... Like so much happened in a few weeks. Yeah, and a friend of mine, Kristen and I were like, talking yesterday and she's like yeah our friend you know so-and-so has this opening tomorrow and it's like and i told her we couldn't come because we moved to calgary <laughs> and she was like what and she was like so upset because like we didn't let her know we just like probably loyal listeners and so we didn't say anything yeah yeah podcast. yeah but i think when you move it's like do you do a going away party we actually because we didn't we we decided we were gonna like keep our place in toronto so we're kind of living technically as far as the government is concerned um in two places and I don't know. Anyway, so we kind of, yeah, we made decisions very quickly and then decisions happened to us very quickly. So everything, like every factor is So changed. basically in, in the course of about two weeks, you moved seven hours flying, like, what is it, three days no, driving? Three, three hours flying, yeah. Yeah, like 
basically the other side of the world because half of Canada is half of the world. <laughs> yeah. You move to a very different town where your family is not nearby and yeah. you lost your day job, which opened up a lot of time for you to do art. You know what's crazy though in that, in regards to that? And a lot of time to you and we should catch up on what's happened with you as well. Like, But what was crazy is like I was stressing out because I had so much artwork to get done because, you know, the... We all know in the art world, like the fall September, is a busy season. Yeah. yeah, we're back. Like, so you're back to work in we're August. We're back, baby. <laughs> and I was like, how am I going to get all these shows done? Um, how am I getting all this stuff out? And it was kind of stressing me out. And then I guess the, the call was answered for me. So it's also good because I do still have income, like as an artist, right? Like yeah. um, that the fall is usually the best time. So Well, and, and, and you know how it works that wherever you put energy you get rewards so if you're putting more energy into the art then more things will come from there it, it really is i've seen that with friends uh, they, they have one career and then they decide to also maybe do a study in the evening and whatever you can see as soon as you divide your attention uh, things change and and when you focus on one thing things change it, it seems very clear to me yeah so this is yeah. the first time in my life I can safely say, and for our listeners, I'm a full-time artist. Because <laughs> I we literally am working, like, yeah, <laughs> but literally yeah. I'm working like full time. Kristen's like, why are you so busy? And I was like, because I have so much art stuff to do. And yeah. uh, I haven't taken even a weekend day off. But how and, do you like it? Um, so I mean, far. it's so far, it's, it's, it's pretty great. But you know, you've often talked about like kind of the loneliness of being an artist alone, you know, kind yeah. of working in your studio. Well, you're also away from your home where you've spent 40 years and your family's there. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's like, in the middle of like, the day. I like, might, I might yeah. often on the podcast not sound like the most empathetic uh, person. <laughs> But I always have a lot of empathy for people moving and I know that feeling quite well. Mm. Like, Because you moved the, to LA, right? Yeah. And you also moved to New this, York. Yeah, there's all this excitement beforehand and you're like imagining what it will be like and you're preparing, you're getting the paperwork in order, you you do a goodbye party, you see everybody and it's like a jolt of energy and then you get to the place where you are and all of a sudden it's like, oh. Yeah, I was talking to someone this week was like that had moved to Tr- from Toronto to Calgary as well and they are like, they're like, first you're going to be like, it's an adrenaline rush. And like that adrenaline rush will fade and then you'll get depressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, first you're like, this house is five times what I'm used to. Yeah. Oh my God. I can, I can move around. I can put my uh, this and that and that. I can have my own desk and all those things that you've never had in your, yeah. in your Toronto place. And those yeah. things are all true. We should, yeah, for, for our listeners, I was I able to I think the to, next like, phase is that you start begging for people to come. Yeah, well, they never can. Yeah, the policy I have, which is I'll pay for your travel, like no one ever takes me up on it. Maybe <laughs> yeah. they will now because I'm close to like the world's largest national park. But um, yeah, like I move, I finally also have a studio. Like I'm talking to you from one of my two studios, maybe three. If I like, there's enough space in this house that I've thought about starting like a, a company, like and having staff. <laughs> yeah, you can start over, the like, new seasons. Apple in your yeah. garage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the garage thing. I never really understood, but we have like a three-car garage in this house. And it's like, it's a lot of space. Like, it's Yeah, a whole, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's actually it's so funny cause it, bigger like, than my apartment. <laughs> Christina's dad, they live in Florida. And then I visited. And his her dad, they used to have a huge place because they were, would always buy homes, fix them up, and flip them. And, you know. and then they lived in a... Nicer town, but a smaller place. And he told me, yeah, this place is so small. I'm kind of embarrassed. Embarrassed? And, yeah. And and we were living in Mott Street in the 
tiniest of tiny <laughs> yeah. apartments. And I was like, I, I really said to him, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a pool, whatever. So, but in America, like most states, that's just a very average home. And yeah. It's something I still can't get used to. I'm three worried for garage, this like, podcast, why do you need too. Three? Like, yeah. My big worry is that you can hear the echo because I'm like sitting yeah. in this huge ro- empty room. Yeah. But I don't know. We're going to see how it works. Like uh, my whole thing was like, let's make it an upgrade because for the same price as like basically our studio condo or one bedroom condo, we don't have walls in Toronto. I think I've talked about that on the podcast. It's an open plan. Like there are no doors in the house. The only door is to the bathroom. And uh, so here in theory, we have we have a bunch of doors. It's, it's a huge doors upgrade. No, like they should measure houses by how many doors do you have. It's always bedrooms and bathrooms. And um, if you went by doors, we're like, this I'm is a mansion. I'm not so sure. Because, I, <laughs> yeah, I've seen apartments in New York with tons of doors, but they're very dark and low ceiling. I see. This yeah. is very bright. That was a big thing. The reason, I don't think we were going to buy anything. And then we just saw, I guess that's what you always hear, right? We saw this place that we could never, we never yeah. fathomed in our life. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. could live in and then yeah. it wasn't that expensive but I, I don't want to be patronizing to our listeners because they you know like not everyone can afford a home it's a huge privilege and we actually had to get help from my parents to do it and I know that that's actually really hard for a lot of folks like not everyone has a family that can help out and um, yeah and especially and people stuff. who move to other countries because uh, yeah part yeah. of why I've never bought something in the US is also that everything seems scammy. I don't trust anything. And that's part of like not having family here and not being like, oh, you can trust this person. We've worked with them. Or, well, I, I'm, I'm yeah. also from a weird family and also like you know, where like we own, like my mom and dad always invested in real estate. Like they bought stuff really cheap. And like, so it, like if you don't own a home in my family um, and only one of us doesn't, you're, it's, you're considered like a bad child, like you're irresponsible well, or something. So that's kind of baked think, into I come from a, the Netherlands is a lot of home ownership and people growing up, everybody. But mm, I kind of took I kind of took a cue from my dad and like, he came from a generation of artists that they all bought places in the 80s for next to nothing and yeah. fixed them up because the market was just very different. And they all felt like geniuses. Like, oh, I have an eye for <laughs> architecture. But they were just buying at the right moment. I mean... and, and the, But the cue I took from it is that I saw a lot of artists who got really good at fixing up homes and they ended up being landlords. They just were oh, really yeah. good at that. And as, so I was like, not for me. I do know someone who did that and that's how they built like a residency program and everything. I mean, that's what I want to do here. So maybe for our listeners, I haven't put the official call out, but if you're interested in, <laughs> this is really like the least safe way to do an open call for a residency. But <laughs> I have like trust. Bow, 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 free <laughs> yeah, residency. Yeah. If you want a residency near the Canadian Rocky Mountains in Calgary, Alberta, uh, I've got a bedroom for you with its own bathroom because we've got the ensuite for the bedroom. We'd love to host you and you can make whatever you want in like the ample room we have here. But the the previous owners of this house actually ran a residency. So there's like yeah, a... There you go. There's a history that we were kind yeah. of excited about. Anyway, that's the update. I, I can guarantee one thing. No one's going to come. I will never start a residency. <laughs> no way. You already have. You, you basically, like, you have a lunch residency, like a lunchtime residency. Yeah, yeah, that's doing. fine. And, and, and BYOB, but nothing, I don't want to have roommates. That sounds terrible. Mm. I know. Every time I bring up this residency thing, Kristen and I talk about it, and then I'm like, wait a second, what happens after they get here and they're like, you know, snoring or... <laughs> 
Yeah, like, dude. You had to make breakfast for them. But I think you just like, isn't that what it's like? To, I guess that's like roommates, right? If you have, yeah. Who wants roommates? Uh, it's been a while. We could try it with one, like an experiment. Well, you have Scully. That's your roommate. Mm. Maybe in the residency application, there'd have to be like a bunch of personal profile questions, like, do you snore? Like, do you like oh, steal yeah. stuff out of the fridge? Yeah. <laughs> You have uh, to believe yeah, yeah. it would be. It's got to be like. Do people who I, run real residencies? I think hate? Jeremy, Jeremy, <laughs> listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Okay, I'm listening. You're finally a full time artist. Don't fuck it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like I'm. Looking, Don't put more distractions. I want to give in it to life. someone else. Yeah, <laughs> gotta pass it on. Yeah, you keep saying I'm not worthy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, no. So I'm enjoying it. I mean, it's been a huge, huge adjustment for the like tech has had like 10 years or more of like, you know, unstoppable growth. Um, yeah, unrealistic growth. Some would say like there's articles about, you know, the bouncy castles and the champagne and the cigars and things like that. And it was like, you know, why wouldn't you work in tech? Because you could immediately double your income and just do really well. Well, that's kind of all come to, to an end. Um, <laughs> can, can, and, can you talk about... Um, why the sector has seen is it really just interest rates or oh, is there yeah. more going on no there's more going on and actually it's not the first time i've been through something similar though not, never as harsh as what we're experiencing right now and this will cascade into like a broader economic problem but basically um you know venture capital is what dri has driven all this growth and what is venture capital it's like people that are privately are giving money to private companies, uh, companies that are not on the public markets. They don't um, want to bet on the next Facebook or and, Microsoft. Yeah, and the way they're organized is it's not their money anyway, right? Like they're taking other people's money, packaging it up as a fund, and then releasing those funds to different companies in the form of like a, what's called a Series A, Series B, Series C, D, E kind of thing. And the idea is that they'll get an exit. And an exit consists of either another company buying the company they've invested in, or the market um, going, you know, the company going public on the stock market. And in, they don't expect 100% of the companies they invest in to succeed. In fact, they have a very low success rate. But for the companies that do succeed, you know, historically, the returns have been incredible. You know, like if you like Amazon or Facebook or all of these things, all these companies started out this way. And so they just need like, you know, one Airbnb. But it, it yeah, it also seems like it's it has a tenets of a religion where people make money in tech and then believe that that prosperity should be shared amongst more like minded people. And this this immense belief in progress and utility and efficiency and building a new world it, it has a sort of like oh yeah I, it, it, the, the, it seems like the lifestyle is like you start at 20 you work your ass off till 45 and then you let your money work for you but you also you retire and so you don't want to work as hard but you still want to have conversations with interesting people and not just play golf and yeah. so it, it's a it's a weird culture of um but uh, semi-working and being part of a conversation. To me, investment seems not just about money, but it's also about everybody yeah. just wants to be an interesting person and say, like, I was there first. And Well, I'm not super you know? close to all the venture capitalists out there. And so, you know, I'm sure there are listeners here who know more than I do, but I've had, you know, conversations and contacts and friends because I've been involved in companies where... But, but maybe I what I mean is, people. like, people, 
who retired, who worked at Microsoft and had a, mm. a, a package of stocks, and you know maybe they made five million, three sure. million, two million. They could just conservatively invest in uh, a mutual fund oh, and be yeah. fine. But they're like, no, I'm, I'm a pioneer. I want to continue the yes. adventure. So that's called yeah. angel investing, and that's like another form of investing that happens even before the venture capitalists get involved. But you'll have like what's called like a seed round and. Often these people called angels will get involved, and what they're doing is they're like, yeah, they're typically they're altruistic, like they invest in companies that inspire them or that they believe in, and that like. You well, know, they, I remember I th- being I th- in your. Why position. we're talking it about on this podcast is that it lo- it feels very close to art collecting. Like people want to be part of creativity. You mm. buy a lot of art. Some people will peak. Some people will. Give up and it's definitely based art. on belief, belief, and it is based yeah. on relationships too. Yeah, so there's yeah, a lot of yeah. bias and, actually and it's, baked and into it, it. And it's, I feel like a lot of art collecting is also about being part of events, meeting people, uh, being part of a culture, and it feels like investing in tech. Is yeah, similar. yeah, and you can sink a lot of time going into to it and TED talks, meeting people, whatever. And it, yeah. It, it, going to conferences so maybe this like goes without saying but i'll just say it like because most people in tech actually vehemently hate venture capital (laughs) like they won't say it publicly but the reason they hate it is this because the way it functions is once you receive a check they want you to spend it as fast as possible because they want you to capitalize on the growth opportunity and they want to know if you're going to fail right like so they they don't want you to sit on that money and it not be working, right? So what ends up happening is growth at all costs becomes kind of, is like a mantra. Like remember Facebook move fast and break yeah. things and yeah. all that. This all comes from growth hacking. Yeah, this is all coming from the same source, which is a, a tremendous pressure to. Well, that's where it's almost religious because you yeah. you see the mission of a company and is growth really part of that mission? But that's not even a question. It's like. You yeah. have to grow. But it was rewarded. And yeah. so, and then like companies were getting, venture capitalists would invest in a company and then they would also then encourage others to invest to do what's called like increase the valuation of that company. So there was kind of like a pyramid scheme or snowballing effect, um, whichever is I've, your more. I've heard similar you know. things in the art world where uh, I believe Mary Boone would encourage her artists to adopt a really expensive lifestyle. Like, oh, let's let's get you in an expensive house, house with a crazy mortgage, so the artist would produce a lot more work. That Interesting. Was a way. So oh. they, she she felt like, oh, if they get used to champagne and having a townhouse and a car and whatever, yeah, um, they'll have to produce more work. Well, there the is like a sunk cost kind of thing, yeah. So once you're in, you can't get out, and you have to yeah. return it, and so. Yeah, anyway, so that's what's been happening. But that's what happened to the whole sector. Yeah, so that's one component. The other component is like, you know, even publicly traded companies fell in value. And that's based on, in addition to, uh, like, all of this is like responding to quote unquote macroeconomic conditions. So, what are those conditions? Well, one, like, inflation went through the roof, right? And so that caused the national banks to all increase interest rates, which meant that money that was once free, because it was basically 0% interest for the last few years, could no longer be applied to grow companies. Like if you were not in debt when interest was 0%, whether you were a company or a private citizen, right? Like you're kind of stupid because you're like, you're saying like, no, yeah, don't give me, me like endless yeah. free money. Like, <laughs> and so you're you, know, you basically... So a lot of people, you know, ascribed that 
you know, philosophy. And so you had all these companies. I just hate the idea of debt. It just, it, it irks me. Yeah. It, it makes me feel like it, it obliges you to. But the only way to grow is with debt, right? So you can't grow without debt is the, is the, that was the overarching philosophy. And that still kind of is because interest rates aren't that high, to be honest with you. They're almost, they're not yet in this kind of late. The seventies, it was really high, right? Yeah, and there's this guy Volcker and stuff that like, you know, because inflation was like 20%. Like, I remember my parents said like, they had a mortgage that was over 10%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, it doesn't matter if, like, by the way, hedging inflation against a house, if your house is going up 20% and your interest rate is 10%, you're still making money. But well, let's not do the math on like, (laughs) all this stuff. Yeah. Um, The bottom line is like, that whole thing, that cycle ended, it will, re- it will resume. It's like, but that the, is the economic the, the cycle. The thing that I think what a lot of people, what is puzzling is that you can have businesses that mathematically don't work. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And so you have Uber and it's based on, oh, we're going to conquer the world and be the default transportation someday and automate the drivers. But for now, it costs more than it makes. Well, look, yeah, it's based on evaluation of the company, and valuation is based on a multiple. No, no, multiples I know. Multiples are but based the, on comps. But it seems, comps. it seems that um, yeah. the current pl- position we're in, and you worked at a company that was also based on myth building and lending and uh, probably not profitable. Um, it all For the average person, you're like, this mm. is really weird. Like a hardware store has yeah. to sell more stuff than they buy, otherwise they go under. Yeah. Like, why is it okay for these rich assholes to spend other people's money? Yeah. And the, the the WeWork story and all that stuff. Yeah. And, so and user like, growth was favored over yeah, yeah profitability or unit economics. But but yeah. the what I wanted to talk about this week is uh, corporate language, and oh, yeah. I think that's a big part of myth building and. It has become so cunning. I, I noticed we were at the airport and uh, saw the Starbucks. And you know they always uh, put the calories behind everything. So like an egg sandwich is whatever, 400 calories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they also put next to that how much protein is in it. Mm. So that's a positive number. And so all of a sudden you're not looking at the calories anymore, but you're like, oh, the cheeseburger has seven Oh, grams. yeah, that's going to fill me up. Yeah, but the, the double cheeseburger... and. It's 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 so insidious. The same with like a, a computer being twelve ninety nine instead of thirteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. All that stuff, and that's what I wanted to talk about because it it relates a lot to what happened to you. Mm-hmm. How you you went into a job thinking right. it was one thing, but it turned out to be that the mission was something else, and that's corporate speak. Yeah, I mean. I think the mission was sound. It's just like the ability to pursue that mission was got harder and harder. And I can't. Well, speak let's say I heard from a friend. Um, was Airbnb asked a bunch of artists to do a panel about the future of cities and whatever mm-hmm. and be positive, and they all got a briefing. We can't talk about homelessness, mm. and so. Airbnb is raising uh, rent prices because people will get a place that they can barely afford but rent yeah. it out for one week of the month, etc. And you yeah. get into this weird corporate language thing. It's like Airbnb is about creative cities, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and what's interesting to me is that this language is a lie or a euphemism or it hides something, but it becomes a reality. And I think, yeah. That's the weird thing. Yeah. In the best cases, it's completely true, right? Like, so 
the mission of the company, the purpose, the values, they all line up to, you know, creating a product that people need at a fair price, right? Like, yeah. you know, if if you used Uber in the first... Yeah, like like, like a baker and it makes good bread and the bread is healthy. Yeah, and, this is a fair, uh, a fair price, price for bread. Yeah, in yeah. fact, this this bread's cheaper and But then you get Wonder bread, bread and it's a, it's a wonder. <laughs> <laughs> so you're yeah, talking about corporate speak from like corporate spin standpoint, I think. Is yeah, what you're well, to. One, of the, one of the best examples to me is, is, do you call it a problem or a challenge? Mm-hmm. And it does sometimes work. It's like, yeah. oh, we we can't we can't climb this mountain. And you're actually, it's really fun to climb the mountain. Let's do it all together. And it, and and you end up reaching the, the top of the mountain, and you're happy. Mm-hmm. But some, I heard this term, toxic positivity. Where oh yeah, when I heard that the first time, like, I laughed like, out loud. Yeah, it's like gaslighting. It's like, what problem? We only have uh, exciting challenges. Yeah, and it's like. Oh, y- your commute is four hours a day. That's an exciting challenge. You should use that to meditate. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And and yeah. meanwhile, people are exploiting their workers, but telling them to be mindful and do the Marie Kondo method because they live in such a small house. Uh, yeah. So toxic yeah. positivity, though, like goes way back, and like there was this under the like in the in tech culture there because the stress and pressure, you know, gets pretty high. Um. You know, critical thinking, you know, says that like someone's going to put up their hand and be like, hey, does it have to be this way? And people, you know, people are like, no, but like the problem's not with the culture, it's with you, right? And so, what yeah, you need to do. Yeah, same with the carbon footprint. The, the, the problem is not with corporations, yeah. it's with you recycling. Yeah, so learning to manage the self is like, I can, that's actually corporate speak, but it is like managing the self is considered the first. It's like you, like, because this is really cultural, and I think it's important for folks to understand. Because if you were to count, be countercultural against that concept of managing the self, it's not going to go very well for you. Like, you won't you won't get promoted. Like, you'll probably get forced out of the company. At some point, someone's going to be like, "You have to learn to manage yourself," right? Like, and what they mean is manage your emotions. And of course, I think the British call a stiff upper lip. Yeah, maybe, but like also like remain calm amid you know stress and ambiguity yeah. and. And these are actually great things to learn how to do, like no matter whether you're... Well, Silicon Valley is a big fan of stoicism. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like if if misused or misapplied, it gives permission for people to create an atmosphere that's like not like healthy and shift the blame to the employee, right? Absolutely. It makes me think of uh, this joke or this observation that Communism failed because it promised uh, paradise in, within five years with mm. the five-year plan, and Christianity succeeded because it promises paradise after you die. Mm. Yeah, and, yeah, and so, so you could th- go to war and like be in paradise right away. Yeah, but there's something about words that I'm trying to get to that it it really creates uh, an alternate reality or what Steve Jobs called the reality distortion field, mm-hmm. and it becomes a reality. But it, and it's this weird thing where it's like but that's where i think it does intersect with art in so much as that it's like it's it's a whole set of it's like it's like a whole universe like it's like marvel yeah. universe yeah but you're, you're like normally objectively if you're like hey do you want to clean out this garage for the next two years and scrub <laughs> all the floors you're like no but you package it differently and then you're like you're you're going to change the world you're well do you want to create dis- the bicycle yeah, for the mind dis- and the bum- <laughs> <laughs> yes and i think that like because because my job for most of my life has been inspiring people amid 
you know, situation in, in like, and you're right, Raph, like in, in contexts where does accounting, like, you know, which was where I got my start, does that sound like an exciting thing to work on for 10 years, which is what I did? Absolutely not. But like, can you make it exciting? I, like, I know for a fact I did, like I did that every day. Like I made it very exciting for people. And I was excited about it at times too. And I still am to a certain extent because it's like a legitimately miserable I, thing in the world. I right? actually think out of all the tech startups you could have worked at, I really think that's great utility if you make accounting for creative people better because if you can relieve some of that stress, I, I think you're doing people a great favor. And I, I think the mission of that company seems very non-evil if, if I look at any No, I mean, but, the, yeah. but there are companies like that and it was based on the founder having the problem themselves. And those yeah. are the companies yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. usually attracted to. But like, that's actually one of the better examples. I think something like Airbnb or Uber is much more questionable. Well, yeah, there are these companies where it is like, okay, well, how could we make the most money? And that does exist out there, right? Like, Yeah, but even com- even when you're making an accounting software, you could be say like, okay, sure. we're not going to... We're going to behave in a different way. And, and that's where that like growth hacking, kind of growth-minded thing led to. And I think that that, over the la- especially over the last two years or three years, I saw a huge shift... In the way people talked about that, building. Yeah, that's what I want to talk about. No, yeah. People talk about it. Yeah. yeah, and what changed was instead of talking about the customer, and there are still companies that are really, really focused on the customer, but like it used to be to a religious extent, Raf, such that like, you know, for, I was like when I grew up in tech, it was like you're on the phone with the customer every day, you're interacting with that customer, like, and the cust- what you're trying to do is like empathize with the customer. Empathy was like the emphasis, right? To understand their needs, like to get close to them, to feel their pain when you made a mistake. And there's still companies like that. But it, it, what I started to notice at all sorts of companies, because I work with a lot of different folks and, and, and like friends and community, people started to talk about instead about the value of the companies themselves. Like, yeah, this yeah, company yeah, yeah. is a unicorn. This company yeah. is a decacorn. And which unicorn is like a billion, deca is 10 billion. And I was like, well, who cares? Like, it could, you know, it could be worth $1 trillion if it's like an oil company or a cigarette company. It might be destroying the planet, right? And so I think that's where, you know, people started to pay attention to those numbers instead of to the reason, you know, why. People respond very strongly to numbers. Yeah, but I saw it firsthand where like, and I fell for this too, which is like people would leave a, a slow growth company or no growth company that was doing the right thing to go to the hot, like exciting, fast. So what what, what is it like emotionally when you're at a stable job, but not the hot thing, and you see other hot things? You feel like you might be missing out, like that. You know, like this is uh, like imagine it's like the 1970s, and you're not in plastics. <laughs> That's an example or something like well, it, you should I, be in plastics right now. I, I, I had a friend who will remain nameless, but who was not sure about whether to jump into NFT. Mm. Is that me? <laughs> Just kidding. No, but you know, one of our friends, and then finally, the, the tipping point. He said, he, he saw the galleries as blockbuster and NFT as Netflix, mm. which is ironic now because Netflix is losing territory to TikTok. But you get the point, and um, you could be doing very well in gallery world, but see something changing on the horizon. But I think that that's why there are there is some suspicion in regards to like you know, NFTs where the price doesn't seem yeah. to be grounded in any, yeah. you know, reality. And I think that that's healthy skepticism up until a point, right? Because like we want 
great art to continue to be made, right? So we want artists to do well. And you need examples of artists that do well. Otherwise, yeah. no one will do it. Well, you know, I, 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 the best case I heard for NFTs the other day was uh, Matthew Stone was on a podcast. He, I know him. He's an artist and he makes physical work and digital work. And he said the gallery system has always been designed to only show you a sliver of human creativity, a very narrow selection. And the selection is kind of random. It's just people that are, were on their radar. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the top five galleries, maybe they each have 100 artists. So you're talking about 500 people. That's a very small slice of human creativity. Yeah. And if you build on software, you know how it scales. And, and abundance is actually embraced. So you want more artists at all costs. And he was saying, there's just going to be this, if you can help... I'm sounding very Silicon Valley and we're talking about corporate language, but yeah, if you yeah, can totally. un- unleash that creativity and, and connect artists to collectors and keep growing and keep um, increasing the scale of that, it's just such a... You know what's crazy it, though? Like I was at a conference last week in Montreal, yeah. which was awesome to be somewhere else, like just with other <laughs> to people. To see human beings. Yeah. And, you know, almost all the panels, this was Mutech, and the panels were all, you know, in this section of Mutech called The Forum, were all about art and business, basically. And I had a curator friend from Montreal who had been flown over for by the festival, actually, and actually a few, it was a bunch of Germans were there. And they were like, we would never have these talks in German, Germany. Like, I, we've never seen so much art and business. And they were actually excited about it, that art and business were being talked about. However, like the counter argument would be like, okay, but there, we're not. No one is talking about the quality of the art. Or no, like, no, no. But that's exactly my point. What I was trying to get at about because we're talking about corporate speak, but mm-hmm. also the art world. How the art world the last ten years has been talking about diversity and inclusivity, mm-hmm. which is a fine goal. It's an important but, goal, yeah. But the the business model, the entire model, is based on very selective selection. Like mm-hmm. a very narrow slice. Oh, we only acquire 100 pieces a year. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. In a population of 8 billion people. Yeah. Let's say that one out of 10,000 people is talented. Talented enough to be a museum. That would be so much more than any museum can handle. So their, their mission is basically exclusive, but their messaging is we're inclusive. And it, it just, what I'm trying to get at with corporate speak is that the, I think everyone can feel it that they're being lied to often. Mm. Like the tone of voice, it's like, okay, you're talking about inc- inclusivity, but you're only showing five shows a year. Mm-hmm. How how can that ever be inclusive? That doesn't yeah, it's make impossible. That, like Spotify can show more artists than the MoMA. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean that's th- how I originally thought about internet art and why I put my work on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, and the same for me. Like, yeah. but but so for us coming from a place of abundance and then going to a very selective place, mm-hmm. I think it's fine for a museum to say we only show the best of the best, but then to say we want to embrace every culture, every part of the world, we're for everyone. It's kind of counter to the what they do. Well, they centralize power, but that's why I think yeah. like um, the most recent documenta. You know, despite the yeah. controversy, which is legitimate, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't guess. I mean, I it, it was. However, like it, I don't like what people were talking about before the controversy was they had curated Documenta to be about, you know, it was collectives. And then those collectives were given permission to curate like other collectives. Well, it's, it's the first time the, 
normally it's the curators deciding what is included, and this time mm-hmm. they even let go of the curation. So that's the first time they really yeah, give away power. Because prior, if, you, if, if, yeah. if you just have the same curators, but then selecting a different set of artists, you haven't changed anything. No, and what I thought was exciting about it was I was also hearing from people that it was the most energized and yeah. exciting and conceptually interesting, like the best art they'd seen at Documenta. Yeah, like, yeah. And so, you know, so like sometimes we think of these things as like dichotomies, like, well, you can only have this if you, you know, or that, like, you, which one do you want? Is it fast or cheap? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I think in that case, you know, it's an example. And I think in the best case, internet art also behaves this way. It's good, fast and cheap. Like you're getting a vast, you know, distribution plus uh, more activity yeah. of higher quality or as good quality. Um, at least there, that's my there is my there is the trade off of um, if you go to the MoMA you can expect a, a certain uh, quality of presentation mm-hmm. and writing and you're you're guided yeah. and with internet art people feel very overwhelmed where do I even begin of course. I'm not a curator how do I curate my own selection of what I see but or if you were to like I'm go on Taya right now which is like a Tezos marketplace right like. You would be, it's just like a long TikTok stream of like <laughs> NFTs and like, how do you assess like what's good or bad? But, right? but what's, the, what's the role here of language? Because we have the language of Silicon Valley promising we're going to unleash creativity and every human mind is valuable. And you have the museum world and like, we'll be the guiding force and tell you what the truth is. And Well, here's my, here's my belief, which is all there is in all of these cases is either fear or belief. Like there's belief that things are going to get better or there's fear that things are going to get worse. And then there's, or there's belief that things are good or there's belief that things are corrupt, right? Like, and a fear that they're corrupt. So, you know, I think that the same is true. Like when we talk about NFTs on the podcast, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people that roll their eyes and yawn. And well, I don't think they would listen to this podcast. <laughs> and then there'd be At a whole bunch point. of people that'd be like, okay, actually, this is like the cooperation that we were looking for and talking about years ago. Like, Well, yeah, it, it's exact, but it, it is the language that the art world has been using, but then actually practiced. It's it, it, like the art world has been using a certain language, but not practicing it. Mm-hmm. And now we're like, it, because they were always saying like, let's be more open, let's share, let's retweet, let's uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And now you're actually making software that does that, that allows a lot of people to participate, that makes collecting more accessible and democratic. And you can't pretend that economics do not intervene with the no. ability to create, because they no, do. No, but, but right? the, like, the, the same. No, no, like, no, 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 I'm saying like, I'm supporting you here, which is yeah, like, yeah. if I'm, you know, specifically if I'm in a marginal position, where I can't afford to make art full time or even part time because I'm working or you're two in jobs. A part of the world where you don't run into curators. Yeah, exactly. Then yeah. you know the economics of that are just do, are not viable. And so, like creating economic viability is actually crucial to creating inclusivity. But what's interesting to me is that the art world uh, projected a certain kind of language and ideals, and actually the tech world is embracing those. And actually practicing them, and then the the art world's reaction is like, oh, this is all a big mess. We we still want to. Well, I don't know. The art world is not a monolith, and neither is the tech world. No, really. no. Yeah. But I, I okay. Let's not put it that way. But mm-hmm. let's say that if the museum stands for selection and and um, 
archiving and making sure that of a certain quality and a narrative, what they call canon, mm-hmm. that's what they stand for, or that's their mission. Yeah. Which recently there was a big meeting of all the museums in the world and they changed their mission, I think. Mm-hmm. Did you read that? All the museums changed their mission at once? How did that happen? Well, there's, a, there's a, basically an organization that defines what a museum is and that organization put into writing in the definition, their definition of museum that it's also a, um, sort of an NGO, like a oh, do, really? do good, yeah. Like, so it's like public libraries, like we're like... They have a they have a collective yeah to promote openness and diversity. Yeah, we're the collective commons for society yeah. or whatever. Yeah, okay, but what's ahead. interesting to me about that is that they don't act like it. It's just they say it. Hmm. I mean, I know a lot I, of folks it, it, in museums just, that are super altruistic. Like, it's not like the most lucrative career you can choose, right? Like, no, no, that's true. But I feel like a lot of times. Um, it's like fashion saying like, oh, we're going to make fashion that does good. Well, what mm-hmm. really does good is for people to just buy one pair of jeans and wear it for five years. Mm-hmm. And how, No, I mean, this it, is, maybe you're getting at a good point, which is, yeah. um, you know, we started this talking about growth at all costs versus like doing the right thing. And the, at the end of the day, that those, those issues are tangled up here in both like capital and in art. And art's not separate from capital. And so... Like what I think everyone wants to talk about or get back to talking about is like um, the qualities of excellent work. Well, right? I think like, what I'm talking about is is just being straightforward, just saying like, yeah, this yeah. But is let what me let do. me like put it another way. Like when we're chatting and you're like, this is cool, that's not cool. Like you're not referring to like how much money the project made. You're referring to like this is conceptually interesting. Like I had an NFT project launched last week on feral file I'm, I'm almost plugging it here because it's not sold out um and i'm a full-time artist so I'm, I'm allowed to <laughs> and plug. i need that money I so that, let's get going jeremy has two, two mortgages uh <laughs> j-dog's gotta pay the bills but like you know so but there, there was like someone who posted that it was like the most conceptually interesting nft that they'd seen in a long time and that was really can you describe for, it for our audience uh, I don't think it's that conceptually interesting. I should caveat it. <laughs> like, I thought it was a funny pun, but um, yeah. but basically, like it, the premise of the show is doppelganger. So it involves like artists that have, that work with the body. There's some great artists in the show. I'd encourage you to check out their work, buy it, whatever. Um, but um, it also has there the the catch was there is like a physical component, which I think a, a few artists have experimented with providing NFTs that are both digital and physical. In this case, the physical is automated because it's, we have a part, they created a partnership with shape shapeways so that like every order of an NFT kind of like results in a physical production. It's a one of one though. So it's like you like, but, uh, but, but the podcast yeah. is short, so let's cut it. To yeah. 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 But cut basically to the chase, you, yeah. you made a 3d model of your, uh, of my head, head and, I, and yeah. sliced it. And then I called it like a fractionalized uh, face. So like, but so everyone can order one slice of your head. Yeah, it's like a coin. Like, just imagine if you sliced my head into a hundred pieces or slices, you get a hundred coins, and then that's like a fractionalized self. And it kind Um, of it brings together your your interest in the body and sculpture and and capital. Yeah, and finance. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's hard to achieve those zeniths. (laughs) I was just trying to wrap it up a little bit because the the. I love the idea, are, and I think it's great because it's so simple. So, uh, yeah, 
No, but yeah. like, yeah. So what I'm saying is like, for me, the idea is all I want to talk about. I actually don't care whether it sells or not. Right. Like I do care a little bit. Um, but it wasn't like, uh, it's not very profitable because printing the coins in bronze or like they're actually poured is expensive. And so I think I make like, I'll make maybe a few hundred dollars if it were to sell out. Well, um, Uber doesn't make money either. doesn't mean that. No, I know. But like, yeah. The, yeah, I like the idea of an idea being worth money or not is, you know, as an artist, the first thing I care about, and I think a lot of artists care about is like either the craft of the concept or the craft of the material side of things. Like when I talk to you about, you just launched this, like, um, I think pretty cool, like synthesizer collaboration where it's like generative you, music. Gen, yeah. Generative, like your visuals generated alongside generative music. And it like makes so much sense. I was, it was really exciting to see it. And then I like click through like dozens of them. There's so many and it's, the variations were amazing. Yeah. 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 Shout out to Rainier for the crazy programming. Yeah. And then the music, you worked with a musician as well. Like there yeah. was, yeah. What's their name? Yeah. Uh, Lego Welt, Danny Wolfers. Cool. He's, he's from the Netherlands, but it's quite, uh, I think, Half the podcast audience would know who he is. Okay, like Dutch Power Trio. And but yeah. what but what I think is cool here is like it like it like it was something I'd never seen before and that was like each one kind of get either you know made me smile or react emotionally. Yeah. And so that like joy, like cuz I was talking to Kristen about this wet blanket for those that are listeners. <laughs> And we had uh, a great time and it was fine. <laughs> and she was like counter arguing that art should have utility. And I was like, well, joy is utility. Like there's a whole therapy industry. Well, and she like, watches a lot of TV. Was, that's well, art. That, well, the she's like, she's a teacher of art teachers. And she, you know, I think like we've talked about too, like, you yeah. know, the Japanese considered art to be useful, but not like in the, in, you know, in the sense of like something that was useful could also be art. Like, you know, your, your dishes or yeah. uh, your home or whatever. So, but I was like, I think, I mean, you always argue that joy is a tremendous function that we like, for some reason, we undervalue. Or curiosity. Or, yeah. yeah. But but, but I, <laughs> I, I want to get back to the topic of corporate speak. Well, that's, I think yeah. it is corporate speak, because in a corporation, at the end of the day, I always remember this, like, it's cliche, but people remember how you made them feel, not what oh, yeah, you Yeah, what's did. that word they use? For, uh, surprise and delight. Surprise and delight is like a con- yeah. yeah. In design, we use that because like, but it always gets cut. By the way, like, the product manager always cuts the surprise Whimsy. and delight because there's no time. We should be just delivering the most value. So that's corporate speak. Well, that's Calvinism. Yeah, we always talk about value in corporate speak. We'll say like, okay, like I'm here to deliver value. If you start but to use the you, word, value, you know, that's that's all Christian, uh, uh, Protestant. That that's all it is. Really, the value thing. How's that? Yeah, like how is it useful? How is it useful? How is oh, yeah. it useful? Okay. And I see it now coming from the Netherlands. Now everybody is in the mode, like we're in a post-religious Netherlands, but now mm-hmm. everything is like, how does this make global warming better? How does it help with uh, sustainability? Yeah. So the same Calvinist argument against fashion before that was like, fashion is useless. You should just wear the same thing. Yeah. Now it's a eco argument but it's the same emotion of, of frugality and, and usefulness but then i was talking to someone while i was in montreal and they do like they do installation design for these like meow like a meow wolf like like yeah. artist yeah and you know he was telling me about how much revenue 
these experiences he builds, which are just yeah, joy. Fun is important. They, yeah. They're only fun and joy. He's like, yeah, our job is to like be creative and like make sure that people are having fun and they're enjoying themselves and like that it's like whatever you know whatever brings smile to people's well, faces. And I was like, well, how much do these things earn? He's like, oh, we usually put it up and it's like at least ten million per installation, but usually you know sometimes into the hundreds of millions. And I was like, <laughs> I was like but this I, is this is very funny because I, I think. We have three things. We have we're talking of many things, but we're talking about sustainability, political mission, economic capitalist mission, artistic mission. Business Good point mission. is back. <laughs> but the, all, all the everything starts with these words, and mm. so you have these words in the Netherlands. It's like how is it useful? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like an algorithm. You create the algorithm of usefulness, and you get the stock market. It's which like a cultural looks, assumption. Like everyone yeah, but nods it, their head. It starts as like. We don't have much, so we have to make it work. Don't throw out food, this kind of logic. Mm-hmm. And then you apply that logic to the machine of the stock market, which was a Dutch invention. And that becomes a worldwide thing, and everything gets abstracted into numbers. And like, who cares if your life is good? The yeah, stock but that's must the problem with numbers. Is that but, but what I'm saying yeah. is it all begins with words. Yeah. It all, it all begins with like, Fun is important, or fun is evil, and like these very basic truisms, I guess, right? Yeah, to use Jenny Holzer's language. Yeah, like, yeah, I think that's true. And when I say truism, it's also things that people do not question. Yeah, but that's what I meant with this growth uh, and this religious aspect of Silicon Valley. Like, Mm -hmm. I made it, I have to pay it forward, I want to be part of the discussion. Let's all. F- focus on growth and excitement. And, yeah, so it's yeah. A kind of interesting in my management career is like the the number one piece of feedback I've received the most is that I am either refreshing or I've never met anyone like you um, because no people are not used to because I I usually am very honest and I speak just like on this podcast or sometimes did, did, did that ever was that a problem in, in your corporate life? Yeah, I remember I had a manager at one point and he was like what's going to happen if people find out <laughs> that this is who you are? I was like, well, I hope they do because like, this is what I stand for, right? Like I stand for doing the right thing and the right content. Like, and so, um, but it's really hard to resist trying to fit in, right? Because people who fit in. Well, and yeah, we all filter what we say up to a point. Like mm-hmm. I, I definitely filter myself for this podcast. We, we often talk before or after the podcast and the tone of voice is different. And no, yeah, but the reason I bring it up is it's true in the art world too. Like I, I got the reaction that was very refreshing when I performed. I performed I performed on stage last week for the first time in like two years, which was awesome. Um, and people were like, that was so funny and refreshing. And, uh, and you know, th- that, that language though. Just like 30 minutes of no guilt. Well, it was because I was like saying like the sandwiches are not going to be that good by the way or whatever, you know, like yeah. just basic comedy stuff. <laughs> um but in an art world context we're so used to everyone just like it is toxic positivity like patting everyone on the back like this is gonna be awesome and my whole thing was like this is gonna be extremely awkward and if you're what i find very very um the way i experience the art world often is that in public everybody says everything is great and when Mm -hmm. the mic is turned off everything is terrible it's a very big but maybe that's in every industry I mean, right now, though, culturally speaking, we probably have to admit, like, the quote-unquote truth-sayers that are refreshing are also causing, you know, huge conspiracy theories to get, you know, kind of built up and the but you know, society you mean, crumble. But who are the, the truth-sayers in the art world? Because that was the role of the critic before. 
Well, yeah, I think like, like the so, Clement Brink Greenberg. Yeah, I'm referring to idea. like Fox News or something. But you're right. No, no, like, let's yeah, let's, talk let's not go there. But like, let's talk about yeah. It would have been Clement Greenberg, maybe. I don't know. Like the art critic. I was involved in an art criticism circle early in my career, and that was like 20 years ago. And people were trying to revive the concept of an art critic, but I yeah. don't think it exists at all anymore. Well, I mean, I, I could be wrong. Like, there maybe I, Brian Dro- about, is Brian Drockler listening? Yeah, Brian, like, <laughs> yeah. give us a call, ask a question. <laughs> but what I what I thought about with art critics is that art critics are not remembered for their takedowns; they're remembered for the movement that they discover. So mm. you you can be as critical as you want, but Clement Greenberg is remembered as a champion of abstract expressionism, not as someone who called out other movements for being kitsch. Like, yeah. if he had only if he had only been negative, nobody would have remembered him. Well, then that's a good example of, like, Gene McHugh and Marissa Olsen with yeah. the, like, post-internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, invent, you know, quote-unquote invented the term post-internet. I don't know well, what they the did, quotes they, they gave it a framework, yeah. And, yeah. and and that maybe goes back to this idea of decentralized art creation, and you have this vast, infinite network of works, and then you need some third party to see patterns and to recognize things. Yeah, but I don't know who is doing that right now because there's like a lot of voices. It seems to yeah. be like more of an argument than um I mean, I'm well, sure that has a lot to do with how social media is structured that things yeah. are, are quickly become um combative and Yeah, so the question is is there someone that's speaking I'm sure there are and I'm sure our listeners will volunteer them. But who is speaking like sagely without taking sides? And without being, or, or who who is seeing clear lines and groups and saying mm-hmm. this is happening, that's happening? Because I'm involved in some shows um, where people are trying to do that. They're like sick and tired of like, you know, taking the evil side of the good side. And they just want to like do good shows, you know. Like I'm sure you are too. But then usually shows come with writing, but writing because the museum world is tied to writing. Maybe that yeah. like well back to the word and to the corporate speak. Yeah, so yeah. they the museums have to write like. We're curating this because it will make the world a better place. And everybody knows, the audience knows, and the museum knows that that's not true. And I think that's where a but lot sometimes of Sometimes it is true, right? Like if you think about certain shows, like, I don't know, Beautiful Losers or something like that, where... Do you really think that that show... I think other than inspiring other people to be artists, like that that's already, mm-hmm. if you if you show art, that's already... Right. There, has there ever been a show that's like fundamentally transformed like even, um, the social fabric? Joseph Boyce, who who planted trees and started the Green Party and mm-hmm. very idealistic. Yeah, I don't know. It what was that? I often feel that the language that we're using in in for corporations and museums to say we stand for Ukraine, we stand for whatever is the new thing. Mm-hmm. I always think of it from the window of Facebook. It's just they're working for Facebook. They're not making. The world a better place. They're just it's virtue signaling. You mean? Well, but it's it's why has that been happening the last fifteen years? Mm-hmm. And I the only change structural change I see is that the the technology of communication. I don't think as humans they've become more. I don't think the world is in more of a crisis than forty years ago. I don't think uh, the the art world is helping the world more. I just mm-hmm. think they have to. It's it's the logic outcome of like if you don't pretend to participate, yeah, you lose face. You know what I think is embarrassing in terms of like you know what's changed about my brain and opinion over the last um, twenty years is that 
I no longer like dogmatically believe in one thing being right and another thing being wrong. And sometimes it worries me because I'm like, the, you know, depending on the context, this Too could nuanced. be right. Exactly. Like, and I, I, I'd heard they call it, I've heard this term both sidedism and that it's, it's wrong to have empathy for the other side. Well, in to bring it back to corporate speak, um, like really mature managers used to provide the feedback to me. Like, so when I was a junior and they, you know, I was talking to senior folks, the, the answer they liked the most in, to any question was it depends. And I was always like, it depends. Like, don't you have an opinion? And they'd be like, well, it depends. And I was like, that seems like a cop out. But the love. Well, I think it's very teenagery to be like, <laughs> this is awesome. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But yeah. like, so I'm, I'm saying it's embarrassing in a way because, it's like, I'm still not sure if it's like me kind of, qu- it's like a French exit, like, see you well, later. Like, I don't want to be involved I, in fights anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you that uh, there's a general corporate speak to just sort of muffle everything and never take a position. Mm-hmm. So so you're like, we believe in uh, activism, but we also believe in conservative voices and everybody <laughs> should be blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we don't like want to take sides because everyone should be our customer. Yeah. Are you two-faced? Like, yeah. and, you know, there's that new social media app called Be Real. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah. a, you know, at a specific time and day of the day, you ought, you know, make, you have to take a picture and it's your front and back camera. And you're so that probably in front of your computer. You can't edit it. It's like 100% real. Yeah. <laughs> but like that, that shows that even among young people right now, there's some desire for authenticity. But, like, yeah. But what's uh, interesting to me is that inauthentic things become real. So mm-hmm. even if corporations are sponsoring causes for the wrong reasons, they might activate good by accident. Mm-hmm. Or maybe... Yeah, yeah, by accident. My collateral damage might be, like, positive. It's not always negative. I mean, I think that's actually a really good point, which is, like, even if this whole, like, decade of growth led to evil, you know, greed, um, some people also benefited. Well, here's the thing, the, the power of words that I often... If I'm at home with Christina and I feel down and I'm very open with Christina because we're together all the time and so my mood won't be lifted because I'll be fully honest how down I am. Mm, yeah, you're and pretty good at that. And then I go have lunch <laughs> with someone and I'm not going to be a bummer so I'll just start talking about other stuff and I leave the lunch actually feeling better. I'm like, what was I worried about? Mm. And so there, what is the authentic self? Is it the one where I, I can be... No, like, I think that that's why I'm saying like it's... um it's uncomfortable or embarrassing because at some point you have to admit that, you know, like for me, it's like, is there such a thing as the self? <laughs> this thing's your philosophy. Yeah. 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 yeah or yeah, are yeah. we a, a collective being? A- like, accumulation of encounters. And, yeah. yeah. And I personally have often leaned, as you know, towards the concept that we are collective conscious and that's why we have to act with community in mind first. I think you believe that too. Like the pay it forward thing is because you wouldn't pay it forward if you thought that everyone was in it for themselves. You would pay it forward only if you felt like it didn't matter whether you won or lose, as long as we all do a little bit better. Like, it, you know, all boats rise. But um, but you might do it if you're Mother Teresa and you still lose or something like that, yeah. right? Like, But then whatever your perception is of a better world than... Well, You've someone, been conditioned. So someone told me the definition of a narcissist is someone who does something for another person expecting that it will benefit them. 
And if there's no value in it, then they won't do it. Yeah. And so at the heart of this whole But has that person been conditioned to think that way because of a cultural tradition? Probably. I mean, everything is socially constructed. That's my, I mean, that's my education. It's hard for me to... Yeah. But uh, that goes back to those cultural mission statements, like, Family is important, or yeah. whatever statement. Well, it's a nature-nurture argument. Like, I spent four years in college debating this issue. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're almost at time here, but it does yeah. seem like we had a lot of pent-up energy, like a month of um, not talking. Silence is violence, my friend. Well, I've just been sitting here alone in a big house thinking about <laughs> life, uh, life and making art and stuff, but it's exciting yeah. to be back. I think... This, I don't know if you're feeling this, but it feels like the art world is back in a different way this fall than last fall. Um, like I, I was at an opening as a vacuum cleaner earlier today, but the opening was full of people. Uh, it was in Berlin and that people were drinking and there were some people wearing masks, which I'm supportive of, if, you know, if that's necessary. But um, I don't know. And then I was at a conference last week. Have you had more like social art stuff or do you have st- stuff coming up? Like it was... Um. The energy last week I experienced I, was like crazy. I've, I've had a, yeah, there's been a bunch of stuff. Um, I think it, it it felt back to normal for a while, but I still think the habit of me going to movie theaters and museums and galleries, I'm still not going as much as I used to. Right. I, I think part of it is that our home is a lot more comfortable than what we used to have. Yes. Um, and it, it habits are funny; they're hard to change. And yeah, I I don't know what it is, but. I definitely still have lunch with people and uh, okay yeah I was I, I never really felt that uh, I never took I wasn't too careful during COVID I saw everybody I wanted to see but yeah. I kind of lost the habit of uh, going to every gallery show and, and well yeah. we could talk about our next podcast but I've been doing you know you, despite me being a full time artist I've also been doing some job interviews <sighs> don't blame me <laughs> it's like I have to know what the options are but um a bunch of places have been like you'll be required to work in person, like, which I was surprised at. Well, so. yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard, like, you can get a great salary in tech and you've had different offers. Mm-hmm. But from what I've heard, those great salaries come with a lot of pressure. It's it's not free money. Oh, yeah, well, that's another, that's another topic for another day. Yeah, we can talk yeah. about salaries. That's actually probably something we sh- I should just do as, like, a public service thing, like... I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's about the actual numbers, but it, to me, it's like you hear spectacular salaries and you're like, wow, and you get free food and all this stuff. But it's not that simple. There, there's a lot of, there's a trade off there. Yeah, no, but I can use like, I can give people like 15 years of data on, you know, how salaries work and how they get it, how you get a raise and all that. It might okay. be a good like. Well, that actually sounds like that could be your new business. <laughs> Coaching people. Yeah, I've done so much of that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, anyway, that's a topic for another day. It's been great to reconnect. We can still take like questions. You should start a Patreon called You're Worth It. Totally, totally. I'll start it for myself to start. Um, We'll still take questions, right? And we're going to still do field recording. So like, let's consider this the the kickoff of our fall season, I guess. Yeah, we're back. Yeah, we're back. It was a it was a restful summer. We hope you had a restful summer. It's been hot here in North America, like heat bubble, right? Are you in the heat bubble or whatever it's called? Yeah, it's still it's still thirty degrees. Thirty three here too in Calgary. We're in. You know, I'm sure I'll be talking about Arctic. How, how much did you go to the national park so far? 
we haven't gone yet, but we're going this weekend. Oh, <laughs> Lord. No, we did go when we visited the first time, but that's what I heard from people here too. Like you sometimes take for granted, like I'm 45 minutes from like the, one of the world's most spectacular, uh, like nature reserves. I just and... couldn't find the time. <laughs> I had to work. Hiking is not useful. Yeah. Yeah. I had some NFTs to get done. Um, anyway, I will go hiking tomorrow and then we can talk about it next week. Yeah. We could do a whole nature episode. But you're so far. Oh, field, field recordings. You've been going out into nature a little bit more too. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. I should record what it f- sounds like here. Exactly. Okay, I'll do that. Yep. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Raf, for coming yep. back. Okay. Yeah. Welcome back. Bye. Bye.